0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. With a Vice President Kamala Harris and a Supreme Court Associate Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, it could be said that black women are having a moment, their moment in history. But dig deeper and the picture is far more nuanced and not quite as optimistic as it may at first seem. Consider the troubling statistics that show black women suffering disproportionately worse health outcomes when it comes to pregnancy and childbirth complications, even when education and income are considered. And even accomplished black women are often more closely scrutinized on the way to the top and tested at every step. But when it comes to, say, election season, you can bet the call will go out for black women to lead the charge, show up, and bring friends and family along. And you know what? Most of the time they do just that. Is there enough attention, though, to issues of concern to black women all day, every day? What is the cost when their efforts are expected, but not always appreciated? And does the current political climate create additional stresses for black women? My equal time guest has some thoughts. Dr. Inger E. Burnett Ziegler, Associate Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Sciences at Northwestern University, treats patients at the Asher Center for the Study and Treatment of Depressive Disorders. Her clinical interests include mood and anxiety disorders, stress management, and wellness and interpersonal relationships. And her research also focuses on examining just who has access to mental health resources. Often, it's not those who need it most. What are the challenges of being a black woman in America? One willing to take on a lot sometimes too much when you know the backup will not always be there, and what resources and services can help them, help us be the best we can be for our communities and families while paying attention to our own needs. Welcome to Equal Time, Dr. Inger Burnett Ziegler. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I think it's very interesting that black women have a presence in both Black History Month and Women's History Month, which we've passed, yet in a way, we are still in the background and not the foreground when assessing and celebrating American history. Why is that, do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, I think for so long, Black women have been in the background of getting things done. Uh, We are often at uh, the center of our families, the center of our communities, lifting uh, people up in the workplace and being uh, those people that are really pushing and getting things done without getting the credit and recognition that's uh, deserved. And I think we see that uh, displayed, unfortunately, in some ways uh, for Black History Month and Women's History Month as well.
0: From your work and your research, could you talk about it and talk about some of the challenges that face Black women in America because of the myths of our strength and our invincibility?
1: Yeah, and so my research is really focused on disparities in mental illness and treatment, particularly among Black women. Um, and we know that for sure Black women face incredible amounts of stress. Um, that stress is related to work, employment, finances, taking care of family, health conditions, racism, sexism, um, histories of trauma, all of the things. Um, and I really think that only until recently has there been a space for people in general and black women specifically to be talking about their stress. Um, and to be thinking about ways to better cope with their stress. Um, so I think this you know there is an exciting opportunity now for uh, black women to be thinking about how to put themselves at the center uh, and think about better ways of taking care of themselves.
0: Can you talk a little bit before we get into some of the solutions and exciting things that are going on, can you talk about the history of how we came to be seen in this country by an outside gaze rather than society asking us how we want to be seen?
1: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that has its origins in, you know, our culture, what we're taught, how we're taught to show up. And I think for many black children who grow up to be black women, we are set with the expectation that we should always show up well outside of the house. We're set with this expectation of excellence and perfection and putting forth our best self. Um, and and to some degree, unfortunately, some of that is we don't want to, you know, go go acting up in front of white people, right? We want to do our best, look our best, leave the best impression in general and, and especially at work. Uh, what I found in my work is that puts a lot of pressure on. You know, Some of that is based in the reality that we have to do that in order to, to do well in the world. We have to have the approval of you know, white people that are in positions of authority, that are doing the hiring, that are inviting you Inside of places that you want to be, um, in order to succeed, um, and that that's with work opportunities, but also you know uh, physical appearance, right? You have to look the part and uh, be dressed the right way and appear the right way in order to be accepted. Um, and I think that that carries on, you know. Um, I think that a lot of people, you know, want to fit in, right? Want to be accepted. Uh, And now where there's, again, I think this cultural shift toward, you know, thinking about the ways in which we might want to start rejecting that, the ways in which we see ourselves differently than perhaps uh, majority culture sees us and kind of redefining that strong sense of self for ourselves and for our community um, and 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 being okay when perhaps there's some sort of inconsistency I think one great example of that is is hair right the natural hair movement um, whereby there has been a time when a lot of black women changed their hair in order to fit in or you know do what what they thought was necessary for the white gaze as you uh, as you put it and now there's there's a huge movement. Um, against that. And I think that's us really reclaiming our identity um, and centering ourselves within our culture rather than in the majority culture.
0: And you've even seen the Crown Act in so many places where uh, it is now you cannot discriminate if someone would wear uh, her hair or their hair in its natural state
1: yeah and you know even with that i know at least in a lot of uh circles of black women that i'm in people are still uncomfortable you know they're afraid even though the act exists there's afraid of is is this truly okay is this acceptance real and what potential consequences might i face uh in the workplace so you know i think these are important steps in the right direction but There is still that tension between um, uh, what is appropriate and acceptable for me to fit in and be successful in uh, a white dominated, uh, in this case, workplace.
0: Oh, yes, it's so damaging to your health and well being. If you're constantly second guessing yourself, did I not get this? Or because they were making these judgments? And how should I act because of it?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you know, that second guessing is something that I absolutely see come up um, in the therapies in the therapy space. That's something that shows up as anxiety, this questioning, this doubt, this sense of insecurity, Um, this fear of judgment, um, this kind of constantly running narrative of, am I doing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? How do people see me? How do people judge me? Um, And we know, you know, in in the mental health space, that when you're stuck in a place of asking yourself these questions, that you're not fully present. And when you're not fully present, you're not able to perform as your best self. And so it becomes this kind of vicious cycle where because you're engaging in this act of kind of wondering if you're making all the right choices and doing all the right things, you can inadvertently be uh, damaging, you know, the way you're presenting in, in that particular space.
0: You know, I cover the intersection of politics, culture and race. So I have to ask you about the current divisive and sometimes downright ugly political climate you know, it's a mix of pride and also concern where we see women such as Vice President Kamala Harris and Associate Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson operating on the highest levels, but still subject to what some would call intense scrutiny. Now, of course, obviously, they are subject to legitimate questions. But when you see it become personal, how does that indeed add to the stresses black women face?
1: Yeah, I think, I, it, you know, those are, are great examples and painful examples to witness. Um, and I think so many Black women who are operating at the highest levels of excellence can deeply relate to these experiences. Um, you know, that old saying of you have to work twice as hard really stands true in those situations where these are the most credentialed people that have had, you know, all of the opportunities presented before them, and yet their value, their education, their contributions are are still questioned. Um, and again, in the therapy space, I see that show up so often, and it does erode one's sense of self, it can, impair self-esteem, it can make people feel not good enough, it can make them, um, it can make it difficult for them to show up in the workplace and even question their value and their contributions outside of work. Um, and so even even people, uh, I don't know what uh, Kamala Harris um, and, and our judge, um, what they feel privately, but even women who, are able to maintain that strong face externally, are suffering deeply um, when they're confronted with these types of engagements. But we've been taught to put on the brave face and to hold back uh, that pain and suffering. And it does erode us and have a, a deep impact, not only on mental health, but also physical health as well.
0: Oh, yes. You could see when a, a Associate Justice uh, Katanji Brown Jackson was comforted in a sense. And she was complimented by Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, who happened to be an African-American man, you, a sense of relief that you could even see.
1: Right. Because, you know, she knew that he knew that she knew that he understood. And so many of us black women understood and in conversations that I had when, um, when she was going through the con- confirmation, there were these mixed feelings of pride of seeing someone show up so beautifully, and also pain of seeing someone uh, criticized so harshly, and knowing, you know, what that must must feel like.
0: As you said, so many women who have worked so hard could relate. And that leads to a question of when you are pushing yourself, because you know, when you said that question about you have to work twice as hard to get, I'm like having flashbacks with my mom, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you would push yourself. So you kind of cheat yourself on that self-care piece, because you're constantly trying to be, quote, good enough, but in a sense, do you ever get there?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, it's a phrase that I, it, it, it really, it pains me to hear that phrase. Um, And it's a phrase that I have a lot of mixed feelings about, because I think it's something that we should abandon. And then I also give pause when I say that, because I know that there's a reason why people are saying that because to a certain degree, unfortunately, I think that it's still true. We started this conversation today talking about the invisibility of black women. And I think that's kind of underlying that sentiment of working twice as hard to even be noticed, right? To even have someone take notice of the work that you're doing, of the contributions that you're making, just doing kind of, the status quo or par for the course so often um, isn't enough. But in doing that, we are overworked, overburdened, overwhelmed, tired, um, not giving ourselves the space to rest, the space to experience joy and fulfillment in the multiple domains of our lives. and you know, some I work with a lot of people, and we talk about that balance. We talk about kind of setting boundaries and pulling back and allowing yourself the opportunity to live a life of ease and joy. And a resistance shows up because uh, people wonder, well, what might be the consequence of doing that? You know, if i if I'm not pushing or doing the extra thing or doing the extra credit or taking on, you know, going to the extra event, taking on the extra project, showing up all the things, no matter how much is wearing me out, (laughs) no matter how much is making me sacrifice, you know, the time I want to spend with kids or the vacation that I want to take, or that doctor's appointment that I need to get to, I need to do it, because this is my way of surviving, you know, particularly in the workplace. So I you know i feel very strongly about kind of challenging those boundaries because i think my number one self care tip for people is boundaries 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 because boundaries allows you to create space to rest to be in ease to have peace to experience joy to do nothing <laughs> if you want to just yeah. do nothing to say no, <laughs> to say no, to say no. And I, I think all of that is a part of self care and wellness.
0: Yes. Well, how does your work remedy some of these misconceptions and place the spotlight on the effects of stress and inequities and in underserved communities? And why does it seem like resources often are not available to those who need it most?
1: Yeah, I, just to take a step back from that, it is true that my research is focused on um, underserved communities, communities that have fewer uh, material and financial resources to address uh, mental health. However, I think it's important to note that when we talk about stress that many of these things that I've mentioned so far, um, stress and the impact of stress on black women, that that shows up across the socioeconomic spectrum. So regardless if you are of lower income, or if you are, you know, someone who is at, at the higher range of the economic spectrum, um, black women still are reporting a disproportionate burden of stress, right? It might be, uh, for example, I have, I have a good friend who is, uh, does senior in her career, does very well, um, financially. However, she has more financial responsibility on her plate, right? She's taking care of extended family members. On the other hand, there are those who um, may have more lower-wage jobs, more more um, employment insecurity, and then there's the stress of being able to make, uh, fi- make um, financial goals and meet financial needs. So across that economic spectrum, Um, black women are experiencing intense stress. Um, In my work, I'm really working to uh, open up the conversation about stress um, among black women. I am hoping to kind of encourage a paradigm shift where black women uh, consider centering themselves more than we've been kind of culturally Condition to do where we're constantly kind of centering the other and challenging this idea that centering self is selfish, but rather centering self is an opportunity for me be, to be able to more fully show up in all of the things that I want to do. Um, and also to realize the way that stress is harmful. Um, I think that so many people just carry it. <laughs> and uh, ignore it, avoid it um, until they can't take it anymore. And by that time, it's too late. By that time, the depression has really set in or the uh, physical health challenges like uh, obesity, or diabetes and hypertension, which we know are all deeply related to stress, have set in and also uh, more prevalent among black women. So, you know, I just, I want people to, to see where the stress is coming from, um, to understand how it's taking away from their lives, um, and to center themselves, to have permission to center themselves, to better take care of themselves. Um, And that's a means for them to be able to do all of the things that they, they so deeply care about.
0: Yeah, more put into yourself, you will have more available, more in the tank. The fact that you said it was across all income levels, I believe is borne out by the statistics that show that black women suffer disproportionately worse health outcomes when it comes to pregnancy and childbirth complications. That's even when education and income are considered. So I do feel that, you know, it does cross all the boundaries. I want to go back to politics a little bit, because I also know when politics uh, heats up, they always look to black women who do vote, I think more than any other group Mm -hmm. above their demographic. And they're always saying, uh, you have got to show up. You're the Mm -hmm. one that has to register folks and get people to the polls when perhaps your concerns may not be number one (laughs) when they don't need you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Should, Should we watch out for that trend too? You
1: know, I think that that so reflects, you know, who we as Black women so often are in our communities. We're conveners. We bring community together. We're advocates. We're taking care of people, taking care of, of the needs of our families. And, you know, we, we know how to rally and, and get people together to get things done. And that's that's essentially what's happening when we're out there volunteering at the polls, working the polls, at church events, at you know, women's group events, um, uh, lifting up whatever our political concerns might be. I think that there, that advocacy um, that black women can take on, I think that that's a positive thing. Uh, and that, that's my personal belief. I think that that's a positive thing our, one way, a positive stress coping strategy is to be engaged in ways that you can around things that are aligned with your values, taking control of things that are within your control. Um, I think the challenge comes in when we're asked to do too much and we take on too much. Um, And so I think that that's something that each of us you know, can reflect on in terms of where our advocacy and community work and volunteer work fits within the broader scope of things that um, we're asked to do um, in our lives.
0: I think that's a great way to put it, that if you are working on something that you believe in, as long as you control how much you put into it, that can be a a source of strength.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So talk about your work with the mindfulness based stress reduction for depressed women in a federally qualified health center study. Is that a part of the solution?
1: I think so. So I am a, a yogi turned mindfulness trainer. Um, and just to kind of define mindfulness, I know that that is a, a word that is popular now It's a state of present moment awareness, just a way of paying attention. Um, I think so often people are kind of running on pilot, doing all the things, going through the motions, checking off the checklist. And we're not paying attention. We're not paying attention to our pain, our suffering, our stress mentally, emotionally, or physically. Um, And so the literature, scholarly literature, has uh, strong evidence that a practice of mindfulness is one strategy for coping with stress, bringing awareness to what's showing up in our bodies, in our minds, in our environments. And with that awareness, we have better control to make different choices, right? If we don't even know what's stressing us out, how we're feeling, then we're not addressing it. By bringing awareness to it, then we can make uh, different choices. Um, So this work is really to bring the practice of mindfulness to um, community health centers, and particularly community health centers that are under-resourced as far as mental health services. Um, And it's a study that I've been doing for about eight years now um, teaching Black women uh, with depression um, how to be more mindful, <laughs> and then collecting data around does it help? Right? Does it help with stress, depression, anxiety, and a bunch of a bunch of other uh,
0: measures that we're collecting? Have we seen it in action? Is it working?
1: Yeah. So preliminary data suggests that it is working. Um, participants that we looked at in the early phase of the study. The data do show that they report feeling less stress, uh, report feeling less anxious, less depressed, and more mindful. Um, The data that we've been collecting more recently, we haven't looked at yet, as the study is not quite done. We're actually in the last couple of months of the study. But anecdotally, um, participants report having received benefit not only from the skills that they learned, but also the community that has been built. It is a group uh, intervention. So you're not only kind of learning mindfulness, but you're in a group of other Black women who are experiencing some of the same stressors uh, that you are experiencing. And so uh, we believe that there is a benefit from that community as well.
0: How big is the sample?
1: So final number as of today, the sample is 245 women for the last five years of the study. And prior to that, we had 154. So just under uh, 500 participants.
0: And this will be spread to community centers across the country with some help from federal sources?
1: That is the hope, that is the hope. So at this stage, it's been, a network of federally qualified health centers uh, in the Chicagoland area. It was a network of eight federally qualified health centers. Um, But our hope for for next steps would certainly be to um, implement an intervention like this nationwide.
0: What are some of the other things that society can do to give this support, knowing that it will really benefit all of us? And also, as you say, pulling away from the myths of what you know, black women are supposed to be like?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, when I think about the direction I want conversation around self care and mental health to go, generally speaking, and particularly among black women, um, there are a couple things that come to mind. One is, you know, changing this culture of value based on productivity. Um, I think that that's a, a pressure that many Black women experience where they believe that their worth is measured on what they do, how they perform, how busy the calendar is, how, you know, how many organizations or activities they're involved in. And I think that belief really contributes to overwhelm, overburden, exhaustion, um, and changing that whereby people feel more comfortable with space and ease and that allows you the opportunity um, to better care for ourselves is kind of the baseline first step. Um, I also think that we need to be integrating uh, mental health into non mental health spaces right so that's already done in primary care to some extent if you are if you go to your primary care doctor regularly they should be asking you a couple questions about depression and if you answer those couple questions positively you should be you know having a conversation with your your PCP but not only in in primary care in in our Ys, in our churches in our prisons and our schools and all of the places where people naturally exist. I think those are the places where screenings and information and education and support around mental health really need to be. Because we know that, you know, I'm a practicing clinical psychologist, but the reality of the fact is most people don't come to me, right? Less than 50% of people with mental health needs receive mental health treatment and for Black people, it's even less. And so it's be incumbent upon us to share information and services um, in community. And then finally, just from from a from a super practical level, I think we need to pay attention to each other more. You know, I I sometimes I get invited in to speak to organizations or corporations when a tragedy has happened, like a suicide, for example. And everyone says I had no idea. You know, I had no idea that this person was in so much pain, or that these issues were happening um, in this individual's lives. And so, you know, I urge people to to pay attention, to ask and really listen, rather than passing by our friends and colleagues, um, not really seeing them fully and hearing them fully. Um, I was recently on a panel with someone and she was talking about uh, intense depression over COVID and being on a, a Zoom call. And after the Zoom call, a colleague with whom she had a passing relationship with reached out to her and said, you're not yourself, are you okay? And she said she, she didn't have a close relationship with this person, but she wasn't okay. And they noticed and they asked. And I thought that was such a beautiful example because that's what we should be doing. Right. We I believe in getting in people's business a little bit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I know that's contrary to, to our culture <laughs> a little bit, but I that's when you care, right? When it's coming from the right place, when you see something, say something, because that's that's how we can we can better support each other extend the hand and if you are the person on the other side of the hand receiving the hand
0: following up on that do you think there's still a stigma connected with asking for help with admitting that you know, we can't do it all with you know we that we really have to break a sweat that we have to take a pause and also a stigma as you said in reaching out and maybe following that gut when you think hmm Something's not quite right here.
1: I think it's lessening, but I think it's still there. And I think the people, from my clinical experience, that struggle the most are those that are used to being able to take care of everything on their own. The ones that are not accustomed to asking for help, right? They're the ones that everybody else comes to. They're the ones with all the information, the education, the resources. And so if they can't figure out figure it out, it's almost like a blow to the ego. What's wrong with me? Um, but I think that we're in an important moment um, around these types of conversations where I see people who kind of meet that mold that are really challenging themselves um, to be able to, to ask for and receive that help. Um, there are a lot of narratives that need to be dismantled. Like, it, I'll be weak, or I'll be judged, or nobody can help me, or other people have their their issues. That's a big one that comes up. Other people have their issues. I don't want to be a burden to them. Um, so, you know, really thinking critically about who's there. So often there are people there that that love you, right? That care. That are asking, "What can I do?" Right. And we're not taking advantage of that um, and so I, I I really think that that's that's an opportunity for us to to share the load um, with other people um, in our community that that care
0: Yes, it's almost a point of pride that you can handle so much, and mm-hmm. do you think that's affects our community more black folks
1: I do I do you know, I think that being Of people who have endured, who have overcome, who have experienced great suffering, but are thriving, that is a source of pride, right? That we we can handle it and still show up, right? And still be on these platforms and be excellent and successful. Um, And for those reasons, sometimes there's a conflict when there's something behind the surface that may give a suggestion of imperfection, right? Um, But my response to that is that addressing whatever that is allows us to keep showing up, right? It allows us to keep doing the things that we're externally proud of and when those things are left unaddressed then that that potentially threatens that ability to do so
0: and the alternative is just burning out and then you're no good to anyone really no
1: good to anyone that's right that's right
0: what can we do how much is is that in our control because i know you work with so many people and you try to empower them so is that one of the more important parts of the solution?
1: I think, I, I do think so. And I, I love that you say that, is that in our control? That's a question that I ask people that I'm working with all of the time. What aspect of the stress that you are confronted with in this moment is in your control, right? So, often people who are feeling stressed have too much on their plate. So we might do a critical examination of, okay, you have all these things on your plate. You're overwhelmed, overburdened. What can you take off of your plate and what's in your control to address the rest? What's in your control might be setting a boundary with someone. It might be asking for help. It might be you know, changing the timeline on something. And there might be other things that are outside of your control. And then we work on acceptance around those things that that potentially you can't change in that very moment. But helping people to see what's in their control, um, help them create a plan to take critical steps to do something about those things that are in their control can really cultivate a sense of empowerment um, and and motivation to kind of you know get going and feel like you're doing something um, because I you know, I see so often that people get overwhelmed and they do nothing and then the problem gets worse and then the overwhelm gets worse and then it becomes kind of this circular um, circular situ- situation so you know taking those critical steps and feeling empowered in doing so I think is is a really important place to start.
0: I think what you say is so important about realizing what you can control because there is so much going on in the outside, these outside stresses from the political divisions to, of course, we see the gun violence uh, Mm -hmm. to so much. And when that happens, then you feel all of these outside forces also coming at you.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. And I I appreciate the examples that you presented because in the last three years, people have been particularly impacted by social environmental stressors that have felt out of their control. Like I'm in Chicago. So like gun violence, like COVID, like um, the news around um, police killings of, of black men and women. Um, these things that are triggering, are fearful, that have a uh, large impact, uh, potential to have a big impact on, on mental health. And it feels like the world is in pain and I'm in pain and there's nothing that I can do. And so my work with people is okay, yes, and validating that these are, these are scary, stressful experiences. What within that, again, is in your control? Perhaps it's limiting the news, right? Perhaps it's thinking about spaces that feel more safe to you than those that feel less, less safe. Um, and that's a really tough one for people who have less mobility in their community, right? Thinking about ways you wanna keep yourself safe from, from COVID, whatever the case may be. There are things that people can identify that they can alter around the way that they're moving, that can give them a greater sense of safety and security.
0: And I like what you said when we had talked previously about rewriting the narrative, because so many folks feel that that narrative is set and you operate within it. And you talked about just throwing it out the window and approaching it all in a new way. I love that. Could you talk a little more about that?
1: Yeah, I, I, and I think this is the time to do so, right? Conversations about mental health are changing. More people are talking about it. More people are thinking about it. The stigma is lifting. There are more resources available, even though we still need a lot more. And the world is different now. There, With work from home, that creates a lot of opportunity for us to shift our lives in ways that might be uh, promote more wellness. And so when I think about rewriting the narrative, I think about what does it mean to be strong, right? Whereas being strong before might have been taking it, taking it all on, doing it all, not letting people know you need help, not letting people know that you're suffering creating a new narrative about what strong means. Being strong might mean saying no more often. (laughs) Being strong, and that takes a lot of strength, right? It takes a lot of strength to be able to tell somebody, you know what, no, I'm not going to be able to do that for you today, right? And that's a way for you to take care of yourself. Being strong means having the courage to say, I'm hurting, and I need help. And I think that a lot of people are thinking about opening the door to to this new narrative, because uh, a lot of black people, black women in particular are worn out and we just don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like enough enough is enough.
0: (laughs) Enough is enough. For our listeners who say, okay, I'm listening to Dr. Inger E. Burnett Ziegler and I want to take this step. Where should they go to take that first step to take control what should they do? Where should they turn? Are there some places that they can numbers they should call or places they should turn to?
1: So I think that for uh, there are a couple of, you know, institutional places that you can start. Uh, I mentioned primary care, primary care providers are a great place to start. If you have noticed symptoms of depression or anxiety, and you're interested in kind of talking to your PCP about that and getting additional resources that are local to you, um, that's a nice place to start uh, an EAP, Employment Assistance Program. If you work for a large enough corporation that has an EAP program, often they provide time-limited free therapy sessions. And Um, I know several people that have had really positive results working with an EAP. Um, Additionally, your company may have other wellness programming available for free or discounted charge, which might be support groups. If you're going through something like grief or meditation or yoga groups, I work at Northwestern and we have those types of resources available in our wellness program. And then there are wonderful. uh, uh, programming and supports available to the general public, like, uh, therapy for black girls, the podcast offers great information, uh, with Dr. Joy. And another one that I like is homecoming, um, that is hosted by Dr. Tama Bryant Davis. And those are both, uh, podcasts that I think offer really great, relevant information for black women.
0: And, and many communities have free or low cost clinics, I believe too. They do. They do.
1: In theory, um, many of them are often uh, full, uh, full to capacity, uh, full to capacity. And that's something I, I'm intimately aware of, at least in Chicago. So while it does exist in in theory, uh, getting in is very difficult can be very difficult.
0: So these podcasts you recommend is a, maybe a good place to start for some folks who just want to take that first step.
1: I think it's a both and, right? I think each, mm-hmm. each person should look and create a toolbox of resources. So it's not to say that a podcast can replace therapy, but I think, you know, it might be your sisterhood circle, a podcast, and then in the meantime, while you're on the wait list to get into therapy, I think we can all benefit from um, different types of resources that fill us up in different ways.
0: Yeah. I know I couldn't do it without my book club sisters.
1: That's, hey, <laughs> hey, hey, that's healing. Right. Yeah. And, and we only spend, you know, 20 minutes talking about the book and the rest.
0: <laughs> the rest Sometimes we don't even talk about the book right. at all. Right. Hey, hey, 20, 20 minutes was generous. But yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And a little yeah. bit of wine. Right. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> Too much information. Um uh, what question have I not asked that I should have? Because you have something important you want to say and share with our listeners on the topic.
1: You know, I think that the additional takeaway that I want to offer to to our listeners is to think about the way that we care for ourselves. Um, we talked about self-care and wellness strategies and resources, but I also mean the way that we talk to ourselves. Um, So often we talk to ourselves in a harsh, critical, put down way that has been um, taken in from messages that we've received by society and perhaps negative messaging that we've also received by family Um, and do so in ways that we don't even realize. Um, telling ourselves that we're not enough, or we need to do more, or we don't deserve this or that, um, and those types of messages are are not serving us, um, and they're contributing greatly to uh, mental suffering. And so, I just uh, offer, invite uh, our friends and listeners to be mindful of the ways um, that you talk to yourself and. And practice talking to yourself the way that you would talk to a cherished friend, um, offering ourselves more compassion and grace, um, and knowing that we're enough, Uh, we're enough outside of what we do, or the material things, or the awards, or the positions and titles, et cetera. We're enough just because we exist in the world.
0: I love that message. Thank you so much, Dr. Inger E. Burnett Ziegler, for sharing your insights and a lot of helpful advice with Equal Time listeners. Thank you. So what's keeping me up at night? Shootings, so many of them in the classroom, in church, at the market, on the streets have become part of the American landscape. And the reaction, thoughts and prayers. Well, that's become cliche. The worst part is the resignation, that little can be done. But is this the best America can do? I write about the intersection of politics, culture and race in my roll call columns. Check them out. So listeners, what's keeping you up? What questions do you have, especially about issues of policy and politics? seen through a lens of social justice. Tweet me at mcurtisnc3. I want to thank the Fiscal Note Executive Institute for their partnership and support of today's programming. They provide a community for senior executives at global companies across industries to come together to discuss top issues affecting organizations, including diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and accessibility. To learn more about their efforts, visit executiveinstitute.fiscalnote.com. And I want to thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.